0: You're listening to IoT Leaders, a podcast from SI that shares real IoT stories from the field about digital transformation swings and misses, lessons learned, and innovation strategies that work. In each episode, you'll hear our conversations with top digitization leaders on how IoT is changing the world for the better. Let IoT Leaders be your guide to IoT, digital transformation, and innovation. Let's get into the show.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of IoT Leaders Podcast, the podcast that attempts to demystify the very complex and often confusing world of IoT. And I'm absolutely delighted in this episode to welcome Stefan Sorrell. Stefan is the Chief of Research at Kaleido Intelligence. So Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me on, Nick. Sure, you're welcome. And and this This week's episode is all about the Mm eSIM, and we're going to really try and double click on this and demystify the eSIM, not just in terms of the technology, but in terms of what it is, why it's needed, what problems it solves, what are the current advantages and disadvantages of it, the state of the market, where it might go in the future, But, but ultimately what are the benefits to customers in terms of deploying IoT projects of the eSIM. Now, I have to say to our listeners that Collider Research, and Stefan in particular, have released a 20-page research report on this that SI was involved in, and that is available now. So if you're finding this absolutely fascinating, which I hope you are, don't feel the need to make furious notes on this because pretty much all that we cover, hopefully, is in the report. Uh, and a lot more, but I'm sure as always, uh, we'll we'll get lots of opinions and views on the on the wider subjects as well. So the report, just so you know, will be available through SI's website, and it's called the Global IoT uh, Connectivity Through Localization White Paper. You'll, you'll find that, and it'll give you a lot more detailed information on this. So with that, let's get going. And, and as we always do on these podcasts, Stefan, let's first of all get to know you, Mm-hmm. as yep. a person so I don't know where were you born how did you end up in a in a in market uh, research uh, and uh, analyst uh, company I was born in Eastbourne which is in the south of the UK I've always thought of
2: myself as a as a Brighton lad though <laughs> I went to uh, to college there and after university I went to live back there for a bit found it a bit more exciting than and
1: world. what did you do at university just as background
2: uh, actually I did a modern languages degree which is a bit um Bit of a ways away from the industry I'm in now, but uh, after I finished my degree, I, I started working in the FMCG sector. I became an analyst
1: That's fascinating,
2: um, in fast-moving right. consumer goods, right. So um, I was working for a big American company there as, as an analyst. And while I was doing that, I, I sort of got a bit more interested in, in things like software development. So I started doing another degree remotely, while I was doing this, and I came across the Internet of Things during this software development course, and and that led me to to a research house called uh, Juniper Research.
1: Let's just take it easy. You covered a few things there. You did a degree in modern languages. Yep. Then you were working in the software field, and you started doing another degree. Is that what I was working bit? in the FMCG. Sector. FMCG. Excuse me. Uh, and then doing uh, another degree. I was doing a degree um, in my in, in my spare, spare time. time. Yep. And, and that led you into IOT.
2: That got me interested in IOT. I first discovered about the, the smart home back in those okay. days and uh, yeah, that led me to become interested in, in becoming a, a research analyst. So,
1: and that took you to Juniper.
2: Yep. Yes. So I worked yep. at uh, Juniper research 10 years or so. And funnily enough, I, I started, I was covering the IOT side of the, the business. So actually, my first report back in the day was was on the smart home sector. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I worked there over the years. And um, as time passed, I think myself and, and a couple of colleagues who were also working at Juniper felt that maybe there were some areas of markets that we were looking at that we could, we could cover in, more
1: detail, go a bit
2: deeper, really get under the skin. Because Juniper
1: is a pretty broad research. uh, That's right. Yeah, that's right. They do
2: cover a lot of, a lot of areas. Yeah. But I think, yeah, we wanted to do a bit, a bit more. So we then, branched off a couple of years ago. And myself and, and two colleagues from, from Juniper, we started a research firm, a firm called Kaleido Intelligence. So I'm I'm one of the founding members. And in that we are looking at mobile roaming as well as mobile connectivity.
1: Perfect uh, background to yeah. the podcast. <laughs> um, and so with that background, that's why I said I couldn't think of anyone better to cover this subject, which is a which is a complicated one. So let's see if we can unpack it. And you know. Let's start off by, first of all, talking about a subject that we have raised on this podcast a few times before, which is, I call it, what the hell happened? Because (laughs) if we go back in the back in the day, uh, and I first started off looking at this area about 2010 or so, when I was in Cisco and uh, we at Cisco and others like Ericsson and and IBM and others, we all confidently predicted 50 billion things going to be connected. Smart home, as you say, was clearly going to be one of them but not just smart home it was basically anything with power and an ip address will be connected by now we'd we'll be here by now yeah and then we now we're in 2021 we look back and say well actually we got to 11 billion things so we got to just over 20 percent and i call that one of the biggest misses in, in in the it industry so from your point of view because ultimately this is a road that's going to lead to how the ESIM and the way it's implemented can address some of these issues but from your point of view let's start off with what do you think are the main issues to do with why we as an industry missed so badly? I think the the biggest issue
2: is that it's not as simple as everyone thought it would be. You can't just say, oh, well, look, here's my device. I can ship it anywhere in the world. It will work. It will provide me data and I'll, I'll be able to get insights from that data. It's, it's, it's nowhere near that simple. I mean, you've got complexity, around the hardware design for IoT projects, you, you know, IoT is a mishmash of of, uh, of different ideas, different end goals, different ways to do it, which means the majority of products, you can't just, it's not just like an off the shelf thing. Like you can't, it's not like right. a mobile phone where you just buy it off the shelf and, and it works.
1: And I think need- that's really, uh, that is a really key thing because we find that, you know, we, uh, we've we said before we have 2,000 I we only do IoT. As well, and we have two thousand customers, and cust- it is it is amazingly common how often customers come to us who are in the IoT business. I'm the project manager for an IoT project, but there is this perception that well, I can you know I can put a SIM into a, my mobile phone and it works. <laughs> so I kind of assumed that was a given, and I'm going to concentrate on all the other elements of IoT, particularly the application integration, the data usage, the security, but but something as, as basic as the device and the connectivity, it, it's difficult. I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you look at the connectivity market today, I mean, when you have an IoT device, you, you can't just have one SIM and say, this, this thing is going to work anywhere in the world to the quality that I need it to work because of the way that the the industry is structured. It's, it's not that simple.
1: And the industry is structured and if look at the M and the mobile network operators, the industry is structured in a whole series of vertical uh, proprietary stovepipes. I mean, essentially the M and O's have a proprietary SIM
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that proprietary SIM forces the connection on onto them. It's the way the model works, which yeah. works for cell phones with some roaming and we'll get into this, but clearly does not work. If the goal uh, for IOT, if the goal is. The holy grail is what you said which is why couldn't i just have one sim in in, in a device that just connects yeah. and, and I, I think for all of us as an industry we we kind of ass- we either ignored the problem or we kind of assumed that, that would be possible back in 2010 and now we're faced with with this issue so so we know that connectivity is an issue so so let me go to the next question which you must guess us ask, get asked all the time because after we say to people you know, when it's not that simple. And they go, well, what do you mean? And their eyes start to glaze. <laughs> Particularly the, oh God, I didn't realize we had to do this. And I don't know anything about hardware. And they say, well, can't I buy a device off the shelf? Yeah, but it's not going to be optimized for the use case, you know, mm-hmm. that you want to solve. So it's not like the iPhone. So then the, the question then becomes, but surely roaming solves this? Because it seems to solve it on my mobile phone. Roaming. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what roaming, never mind this eSIM stuff. I mean, the first thing they say is, yeah, but isn't that what roaming does? Yeah. Now, you guys are real deep experts on roaming. That's what your website <laughs> says that you do. So what's what's your take on that? So, you know, why why doesn't roaming just solve that problem?
2: I think first thing we have to do is, is go back to how roaming was... Uh, originally established. So it's a series of agreements between operators based on an understanding mostly of, of bilateral traffic. And these agreements were made at a time when the Internet of Things or the business model was 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 made at a time when the Internet of Things didn't really exist. M2M was was barely even a thing at the time. And really the idea is that, you know, we humans like to think we're special, but actually we're quite predictable in terms of how we travel, how we use our devices. And that is what the the roaming business model is about. It's about predictability in terms of, okay, this number of connections or this much data is going to be used in a roaming scenario on my network for a short amount of time. You know, people don't go abroad and
1: live there and, and then roam. Normally it's like three months, isn't it? You've
2: exactly, Three exactly. months
1: on the network and then by which time you've gone back home, whatever. Yeah, like
2: longer than 90 days, you can consider that device as, as permanently roaming, which is a special use case and uh, is actually challenging, which I think we'll probably get into a bit later. But when you have that business model transferred to machines, and we talked just now about how IoT is very customized, the fact that it's bespoke from project to project, the type of use case is different from project to project, which means the data, the usage, where these devices are shipped and used is is no longer predictable. And that doesn't fit the roaming business model, which is based on, on that predictability. So that's one side of
1: it in terms of- So just to to, uh, make sure I understand that. So that is an interesting way of looking at it. If I repeat it back, what you're saying is the roaming agreements were basically built out of the consumer voice essentially. Yeah, exactly. Where there was a degree of predictability. So I'm network A and I'm gonna do, say I'm a European MNO and I'm gonna uh, do a roaming agreement with a US MNO, but it's because I know that I've got customers on my network in, in the UK and when they go on holiday to the US or they work perhaps for a few weeks there, I know mm-hmm. that they're in the US. They typically are only in the US and, and then they're going to come back within 90 days. So I'll just exactly. do an agreement, like a reciprocal trade agreement, if you like, yep. between the M&O uh, in the US. And the m will probably do a similar one for American tourists, you know, coming to the UK. And we'll just say we have a quota. I'll let you have a, I guess it's, Are they structured, these roaming agreements, are they structured around a certain number of devices and or a certain percentage of the uh, traffic? Is that typically how they get structured?
2: Yeah, pretty much. So it's based on expected uh, volumes. But I mean, the, the major difference is, you know, today's smartphones are all high volume data devices. So when uh, wholesale agreements uh, are made and those are based on traffic, then an operator can expect a, a reasonable return. But then when you have an IOT device, a lot of those devices are are not consuming not
1: data They're exactly
2: yeah. so for example, when we look at the the roaming market, when we look at the wholesale so the inbound roaming market in terms of revenues, over 70% of that market is covered by IoT devices that are using more than 100 megabytes per month which is a very unusual amount of data for an IoT device to be using normally it's normally it's less than definitely less than 100 in some cases maybe between between 10 megabytes or something and, and the the revenues that you can get from that are very very small in, from a wholesale perspective so in that sense, the, the business model to allow lots of devices to come in that don't produce a lot of data is, is not a great one. It's, you're not getting any money from the data c- consumption, but you're still having to cover your signaling overheads. So the IoT devices are still sending traffic over the, yeah. over
1: the signaling. To pay for physical infrastructure, uh, Cisco exactly. switches, and switches, say, or pipes. Yeah. Uh, but you're getting a a percentage of a small number and as data prices drop and iot devices start sending proliferating and start sending frankly less and less data like narrowband and lp1 you're getting a percentage of a declining number mm-hmm. but your cisco routers and switches aren't on coming down mm-hmm. uh, and cost accordingly so th- that presents a Uh, Would you call it like a a, a growing financial disincentive uh, in the industry?
2: Exactly. Yeah. I I think we're seeing that fear of, so we we talked about how a lot of IoT devices can spend a long time in the country in contrast to to humans. Yes. Um,
1: And you don't know in advance that it's not like I bought an airline ticket and I'm coming back in two weeks after my holiday in Florida. Yeah. I'm making making 100,000 widgets. And a a certain number of them, I don't know how many, many will be sold in the US and will stay there.
2: Yeah. And the more devices you have out there, the lower the incentive for for the operator
1: if they're producing small amounts of data only. So the theme, the theme, Stefan, and we definitely hear this. I don't think people do. I'm glad we're shining a light on this because I don't think people do understand this is that. You're describing as an as a you know as an analyst firm that spends all their time doing this. In fact, you even left an analyst firm and formed another one, just specifically to go into this. It's a model which is a, if I were to repeat, built for the consumer, initially consumer voice, but certainly the consumer market. Mm-hmm. B, and B is set based on a set of assumptions that are not just not applicable to I, IoT, but increasingly unapplicable uh, to IoT, the number of d- devices as the number of devices grows, the financial incentive, and the practicality of roaming agreements drops. Yeah. And would you say that, and, and that's only going to carry on nothing that you've said, says that there's something coming. And, and certainly, the, we'll get on to eSIM. But if unless you change the model, what's going to happen is roaming is is just not going to be financially worth it. Mm-hmm. And, and Would you say for the for the operators? And if roaming goes away, then connectivity goes away. So would you say that this is one of the reasons why we're seeing, and certainly we're seeing this, an increasing number of roaming agreements being terminated at very short notice?
2: Yes. So there's two elements, which are two major elements, which are are placing pressure on, on the roaming market apart from the business model. And this comes on the one hand from increasing operator hostility, towards permanent roaming. Yep. And that's driven, of course, by the business model as well as um, emergence of things like roam-like at home in, in the EU, which which takes away some of the upside on, on the consumer side for wholesale. Yep. And the second side for, of, of pressure is uh, on the part of regulators themselves, particularly in markets like China, India, Brazil, Turkey, Turkey, even the UAE now has a specific regulation, which says that uh, business data must reside within the country, you can't apply a traditional roaming model. So the regulators are having a big uh, impact on the one hand while operators are having a big impact on the other hand. So if you're, uh, if you're in the shoes of a customer saying, okay, I want my device fleet out there, I know. It's, I want it to be out there for 10 years or more. Yeah. That pressure from the... I want surety, me, I
1: mean, of, of surety of connectivity. I don't want to have to be someone who spends all the time monitoring roaming agreements and seeing whether they're there or not. And it, exactly. To, uh, it, exactly.
2: I don't want to spend 60 plus months developing and testing and prototyping and deploying only to find uh, uh, a year later Um, Either the regulator has decided that permanent roaming
1: is not available. And that can happen. So roaming agreements, roaming agreements are not financially, are financially less and less attractive. Mm -hmm. So people don't want them. They get terminated regularly and it appears to be increasing, not surprising given that the financial incentive is getting worse. And regulators are increasingly stepping up for a variety of reasons, frankly, political, and as well as protecting the hometown hero in
0: -hmm. the
1: country and saying, like Turkey is a very good one, three months, and you're off. Yeah. In, unless you put a say a Turkcell sim in it. So, at this point, I guess we've we've shone a lot of light on just you know one element of why we didn't get to that magic fifty billion dollar figure. I mean, this is this is not a nice, easy, predictable world for people who are wanting to roll out IoT deployments. So, mm-hmm. not surprising that some of the bigger projects. You know, when you look at that 11 billion versus the 50 our research shows us that most of the 11 billion were small regional projects that didn't need to go single skew globally around the world and, mm-hmm. and again you're reinforcing why that is because if you want to create one widget manufacture millions ship it around the world and it just works all the things that you talked about make it almost impossible mm-hmm. so so let let's pivot then before everybody gets so depressed and think oh i give up i'm, I'm not going to do iot i give up because the 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 IoT has a wonderful opportunity to uh, reduce costs and increase productivity, collapse supply chains. We've talked a lot about it in this series. So on the horizon comes eSIM. And, and mm-hmm. now the next thing people say is, oh, don't worry. I know the roaming model is broken. And I know, my perhaps they say, I know my model relies on roaming, but don't worry. eSIM, and then that takes us into EUICC. eSIM and EUICC, they're going to solve this problem. That's the the latest thing is don't worry about it we've okay. got it covered so first of all for people who don't know maybe just a little bit can you just briefly describe what the e-sim is when we talk about what is an e-sim and the euicc uh, standard yeah. what's that all about
2: yeah so e-sim is a little bit of a misnomer it stands for embedded sim but actually doesn't have to be embedded exactly. any sim form factor and really the, the main goal of, of the eSIM, so there's two parts. You have the hardware side, which is the, the eSIM chip itself, and then you have uh, EUICC, which is a software framework for remote management and remote provisioning of the SIM card. So that's what separates it from a traditional SIM card, like you so mentioned earlier.
1: provisioning, uh, the ability to push an IMSI, an international mobile subscriber identity, over the air. Yep. into the SIM as opposed to it being hard-coded in as it is with a proprietary m
2: Exactly. So you, you spoke earlier about how, you know, your traditional SIM, you're locked into the operator. With eSIM, that's no longer the case because you have this mechanism via the software platform to download a new operator profile wherever you are in the world. So what that means is on the production line, you don't have to have different colored color coded SIM cards, depending on where they're going anymore. You don't even necessarily have to know exactly where they will end up anymore because you can, the eSIM contains uh, something called a bootstrap profile, which is designed to initial, provide a sort of a startup yeah, connectivity. Always,
1: always connect, yeah, wherever yeah, it yeah,
2: is. yeah. Wherever it is in the world. And then it will use that bootstrap profile to download or activate an operator
1: profile within that country but that's that's the right one for that device exactly so yeah. so now i feel better i'm a user ah now i feel better we we've solved all all of our problems have we not quite <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's uh it's it's a little more complicated than that yeah,
1: yeah. and a uicc is 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 uh, uh plays a role we should make sure we cover that off as well so i i get the eSIM now mm-hmm. uh, um I'm seeing the light here. I say, okay, well, I have a eSIM. It's got a bootstrap. It 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 connects, but it's connecting on the wrong network. But as soon as I've got I'm connected, I can OTA over the air push something in. That sounds that sounds good. So mm-hmm. what's this EUICC all about? So the EUICC
2: is a standardized framework made by the GSMA. So they have a security accreditation scheme. Yep. So they uh, make sure that the production of a SIM card is secure with certified players, and on the software side, you have certified players as well. So you have two components for IoT called the um, the SMDP and the SMSR, which is Subscription Management Data Preparation, Subscription yeah. Management uh, Secure
1: Routing. So, and these the, are, these are, are, these acronyms are going to become very important in about. Spoiler alert. Right, yeah. Very important in about five minutes. Yeah. Um, so pay attention. <laughs> so yeah,
2: the, the SMDP is is there to securely store operator profiles. Right. And then the SMSR is used to take that profile and download it onto the device That's in right. a secure manner.
1: Okay, so let's lay out the table in front of us. It's sounding good. It's sounding like we've solved everything so far, because mm-hmm. we, know, we know we haven't. But but just for the moment, from the mess we had previously, called the current state of the industry, we now have three things. We have the eSIM, which is essentially programmable. It's over the air programmable. It has a bootstrap, so it will connect, so you can put one SIM in every every device now and then localize it or push an IMSI into it from an operator that you want locally. And then you have two critical bits of functionality, the SMDP which is the database, if you like, of the uh, profiles, the IMSI codes, the profiles that are available to be pushed in over the air. And the SMSR is like the switch. The SMSR service is the switch that says, if this device is conforming, or uh, is placed in this uh, location, then push this IMSI in from the SMDP list into the device. Mm-hmm. So sounds like we have sorted it. Now you and I both know, We haven't, but a lot of the reason I'm I'm sort of dumbing it down, if you like a lot of people, again, they come to us, being a global company and say, oh no, 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 I've been told by other players in the market or whatever, that that the, the E-SIM and the SMDP and SMSR will solve all these problems and still 80% of IOT projects are failing, right? So we know there's another gotcha. So let's go to the next next chapter, if you like, why does what you just described not solve all the problems you talked about previously?
2: Well, it's a very good reason why when we look at eSIM today, you know, there's a lot of devices actually enabled with eSIM, but only give or take 20% of those devices globally are actually using eSIM connectivity. And the reason is because of the complexities surrounding the SMDP and the SMSR. So, so, what does that mean? It's, it's not as simple as if I'm a customer, it's not as simple as me flicking a switch and saying, okay, I want to switch to, from operator A to operator B, because the SMDP and SMSR live inside the operator's domain. And normally, what happens is when you switch between one operator and another one, you also have to switch over to a new SMSR, a new SMDP. Uh ah. which requires some pretty heavy integration in terms of apis or you know billing schedules might be different between operators starting again. Exactly. So this process can often take months. And so it's not cost- a
1: switch it's not a switch as as you know people think, oh I can switch OTA. So I'm on operator a, I need to go to B, wait a second, wait a second. I'm over. Or even if you've got your mobile phone, I have a I have a, a Vodafone SIM in my uh, mobile phone. If I want to move to EE, I can get a pack code and I can mm-hmm. do it. But, but you're saying it, it's a little bit more similar to that, because if I switch from Vodafone to EE, I've now got a contract. I had a contract with Vodafone. I've now got a contract with EE. Yep. I've now got a, a new pricing schedule. And in the case of IoT devices, if I've uh, API integrated my device and the data into my backend application processes, I may have different set of APIs, I've got a different support number to call if things go wrong. So I'm enabling a transfer, but I'm enabling the tran- I'm solving the problem, this is my words and keep me honest. we appear to, with that level of implementation, we appear to be solving the problem for the MNO. And the MNOA, can completely move the device to MnOB and (laughs) MnOA is done. But from the customer point of view, the customer now has got to do a reintegration for MnOB, which if you only had had one or two devices, okay. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a thousand devices, 10,000 devices, a hundred thousand devices, and you want to move them all the time to optimize connectivity, suddenly you've created even more work for yourself as the user.
2: Yeah, you're looking at months of work and a lot of months money. of work. And this is one of the reasons why, when historically with eSIM, it's it's mainly been limited to automotive applications because they were able to to afford that those kinds of costs, or at least absorb the costs. Whereas other IoT segments were
1: could just couldn't afford it and couldn't rewrite their systems. And so we almost got there. It it looked like we could have global connectivity, but actually when we double clicked on it, there was, ah, yes, but (laughs) back end. Okay. Now this wouldn't be an SI podcast unless we said, but there is another way. So I know you guys, in fact, that's how we started our, our business relationship and indeed the, uh, the trigger for the, uh, the white paper is that we were briefing you about, about what we do and how specifically we solve that problem. Okay. So, so just for our listeners, we do SI does everything that that Stefan has just talked about, except the key difference is two key differences is that we actually have, we run our own SMDP and SMSR in our, in our cloud platform. And we interconnect with a whole series of MNOs. Uh, so that we can, the net effect is we can switch between MNOs on a global basis. So if you need localization in Turkey, we can switch you to a Turkish SIM. If you need localization in the US, we can switch you to Verizon SIM, you know, the IMSI OTA into our SIM, same for China, et cetera, et cetera. We've got 14 of them, but because we control the, we've got the abstracted SMSR and SMDP, although we're doing the switch from the user point of view, there is no none none of these issues that you refer to exist because you're always connected to si's platform. You don't have to change your apis. you still have the same pricing. We have <clears throat> as we get fixed pricing, you don't you have the same support number. So so our belief is that the only way you can implement the esim uh, deliver on the esim promise is to abstract the smsr and the SMDP up into a high level, which we call like a virtual, mobile network operator, Mm -hmm. VMNO, as opposed to an MVNO, a mobile virtual network operator, because mobile virtual network operators typically come from the consumer background and enable the transfer from A to B, but the user then has to do all that work, that months of work that you're referring to. So we've actually created a lot of the functionality that that is within the MNO in in a software layer in the cloud which means the devices can switch and all of these interfaces don't have to change. And and that was the genesis of, of the research report. Your view as a, as an independent analyst on, on that solution and whether or not that is a, a step forward, I'm not saying it's the whole answer, but a step forward in solving these issues.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, when your provider, so you're a provider who has many different agreements with operators around the world. So in terms of that, you're able to connect with, uh, what is it, over 700 network operators? 700,
1: over 700 different networks with localization and roaming agreements. 14 localizations and however many different roaming agreements. So basically ubiquitous. Yeah, say.
2: exactly. So from a coverage perspective, that's that's pretty much sorted. But the, the key Differentiator here is, is, like you mentioned, the ownership of the SMDP and SMSR. I mean, if you can avoid that integration costs, if you can avoid the headaches that are associated with switching APIs or new management in terms of your business relationship, then the business case for eSIM becomes a lot more attractive. Right. But the fact is that eSIM itself is a little bit more expensive than a traditional yeah. SIM. Because in most cases, there's more memory on the card. Uh, yeah. It's a newer technology. And, of course, then you have those software components.
1: Yeah, that, it's like an app- application. Um, it's, like a, it's almost like a small computer. There's an application on the card and software components that exactly. enable uh, the, these capabilities. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, th- I think companies will will be able to see, okay, I can see why I'm paying a little more for eSIM from, from sort of a high-level perspective, but they might not understand the the, the full challenge that has gone into it in terms of investment and complexity, which has perhaps made them shy away. But when you're, if you're able to deliver a solution that removes a lot of that complexity, then I think the idea of paying a little bit more to receive something that's future proof and standardized by, by the GSMA gives you a guarantee for, for IoT projects. We talked about how roaming is perhaps not the best idea for long-term projects. Yeah. So, eSIM is a, is the answer to that, but if eSIM is too expensive, that might stop you from getting into yeah, it. Yeah, and
1: and that's why I said Stefan that I still don't think it's you know yet the holy grail because in, in reality, it, it's an interesting scenario. You don't know in IoT back to where we started. You don't know you've you have you are going to have a problem until you've had a problem. And and then the second time round, you say, well, I'm not going to do that again. I, I'm going to mm-hmm. make sure I fix that before I get started. So, yeah, of our 2,000 customers or so, I would say 70%, 80% of them have come to us after a failed project. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, the SIM costs a little bit more. The service may cost a little bit more. But if that means you get 99% first-time global ubiquitous connectivity out of every device in every country, as opposed to 92 or 93% and have to swap SIMs, or you have to change your APIs at the back end because of because of the, um, the uh, e- eSIM uh, switching uh, problems that we uh, referred to, you pretty soon realize that the, the costs of having to do that all that work, or the costs of not having access to 8% of your devices is many, many, many times greater than the cost of spending another 50 or 75 cents on the SIM. The problem is that until you really realize that they are going to be issues, that little extra cost for for per sim, per device, it says, oh, well, you're more expensive than others. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think that we have to look at TCO, total cost of ownership, and yeah. ROI metrics, which is what the IT industry in general had to do, because it's about delivering a business outcome. And the business outcome is directly proportional to... To the percentage of connectivity, because what you're really after yeah. is the data, yeah. and getting data from 92% of your your uh, devices, you know, 92% of coffee coffee machines, 90, 92% of uh, lockers, 92% of heart monitors, is not as good a business case as getting n- as near to 100% as is physically technically possible. Yeah. Let, let's so so we've made we've made strides, and and we are uh, definitely seeing. That this is um, the new model, the abstracted SMR, e- e- extracted SMDP and EUICC enable switching into a step two profile into an eSIM to get one product SKU. So we're, we're definitely getting closer. At the risk of complicating a little bit more, and we won't have time to go into this in as much detail, what about the guy who says, okay, I get all that, but... You know, my, the company I'm talking to tells me, oh, well, don't worry about any of that because there's something else coming. So, oh, no, wait. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's confusing for people. No, no, no. There's something else. There's always something else coming. Now, this yep. time, over the horizon comes the iSIM. Mm-hmm. So can we cover that uh, on this uh, as we're, you know, you're educating people, I'm sure. So how is the iSIM fundamentally different or isn't it to what we just talked about? It is, and it isn't. Okay, that's an easy answer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, iSim basically takes the eSim concept, but instead of a separate sim chip, yep. it's it's integrated into the system on chip itself.
1: It, it's firmware. It, it's software inside silicon, essentially. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Yes. So, what that means is that you you have a a, a smaller footprint, when you're when you're manufacturing devices, you don't Device, need to have space yeah. For, yeah. for a SIM chip anymore, which means that you don't need to pay that extra cost for the SIM. So it saves you money. And also it means that your devices can be smaller, or you might actually have
1: room to put
2: whatever else you, you, you might want. But, but does it,
1: to it, put presumably it also means that if you're going to go now, if, if the SIM is going to physically disappear. And it's not going to be on the board. It's going to be firmware inside the chip, you know, the mm-hmm. module, the modem. Then presumably, all the more reason why you need to not have lock-in. You need to have ubiquitous uh, connectivity capabilities because what it, if you don't have it, it the, the the remediation process is not just change the SIM. You'd have to change the whole module. If you didn't have it. Now, that and yeah. the modules are a lot more expensive and difficult to change devices than SIMs are.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm sure there are some listeners who have listened to iSIM and said, well, hang on, iSIM's not coming, it's already been commercialized. Well, actually, iSIM might well have been commercialized by a few vendors, but it hasn't been standardized. in the same way that the EU ICC specification has. So right now you can't take an ISIM and use that standardized framework to switch operator profiles at will. What's happening right now is that the GSMA is working on, on standardization. Then over the next two, three years or so, we'll start to see commercialization of standardized ISIM available on the market and that will offer a lower cost hardware solution versus yeah. easy
1: okay well we've covered stefan we uh, first of all thank you for simplifying what is a very complicated uh, environment and we've covered a lot of ground mm-hmm. we've, we've we've covered the you know the connectivity the complexity the lack of adoption the uh, roaming the commercial problems of roaming the the user issues the the, the declining price the, the the fractured broken economic model of roaming, which leads to lack of surety going forward, the, the promise of eSIM and EUICC, the reality of eSIM, the importance of the SMDP, the SMSR, and then the idea of an abstracted agnostic uh, mm-hmm. platform to solve those issues. And then into, yes, but we've still got some more issues to come, as there always is in the IT world, <laughs> some more issues to come with, with with doing it all again in regard to the iSIM world. So. And so hopefully in the future, we we have another uh, podcast where we say, and oh, now this is how we can solve the problem in the ISIM world, but we don't need to do that yet because there's only a certain amount of new technology that people can absorb. I think the key thing, key takeaway is that eSIM is needed. Ubiquitous connectivity is needed. eSIM is an important part of the solution and the SMSR and the SMDP uh, and where they are resident are really important uh, factors to take into consideration for, for, uh, listeners when considering global, particularly global IOT deployment yeah. projects. So, a lot of content in this podcast. I want to thank you again. Uh, yeah, step you. also give a shout out to, um, uh, Collido, your website. So you're a specialist in this area. This is what you do. And, uh, there is this 20 uh, page uh, report, uh, which goes into what we've talked about and more in a lot more detail which is available in the meantime let me wrap this up and thank our listeners if you uh, any of you listening uh, think there's a subject we should go into in more detail this was one of those subjects that people said can we really go into this because it's complicated and there's lots of claims and counterclaims so hopefully we've clarified things for you and if there's any other subjects you particularly want to go to us please reach out to us either to myself on linkedin nick earl e-a-r-l-e, E-A-R-L-E of SI, E-S-E-Y-E, or just reach out to us on social media in uh, other ways, and we will take your inputs uh, into account for future episodes. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank uh, this week's guest on the uh, IoT Leaders uh, podcast, Stefan Sorrell, who's Chief of Research at Kaleido Intelligence. Uh, Thank you, Stefan, and thank you for, as I say, taking a really complicated subject and simplifying it as much as is possible for our listeners. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone else for listening. Thanks, Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to IoT Leaders, a podcast brought to you by SI. Our team delivers innovative global IoT cellular connectivity solutions that just work, helping our customers deploy differentiated experiences and disrupt their markets. Learn more at si.com.
0: You've been listening to IoT Leaders, featuring digitization leadership on the front lines of IoT. Our vision for this podcast is to be your guide to IoT and digital disruption, helping you to plot the right route to success. We hope today's lessons, stories, strategies, and insights have changed your vision of IoT. Let us know how we're doing by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and recommending us.